Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When I first got in touch with Fred's daughter, Kirsten, she told me she and her sisters had tons of materials related to Fred's case. Court filings, notes, pictures, police reports, tapes of the actual investigation into Fred. All this stuff was sitting in boxes in a hayloft at Heidi's place in Colorado, which is actually her grandparents' ranch, where her mother, Jean, grew up. So over the summer, when all three sisters, Heidi, Kirsten, and Kim, were going to be together at the ranch, I went out there to meet them and have a look at the trove of documents. We climbed into the hayloft and opened a box. It was full of letters the sisters had written to Fred. Heidi pulled one out. It was in her handwriting. Okay, so this is dated April 18th, 1981. So weeks after he was arrested. Yeah, weeks after. Dear Dad, how are you? I am fine. By the way, I'm 10 years old, <laughs> just FYI. I had a fun time talking to you. I hope you have a happy, happy Easter. I miss you very, very, very much. Here's a joke. Knock, knock. Who's there? Boo-hoo. Why are you crying? I wish you could come out of jail soon. You never did anything wrong. I love you. We're on your side. Love, Heidi. P.S. Please write back. I love you. 
It started raining. One of those afternoon summer storms you get in Colorado. Heidi pulled out another letter. April 16th, 1981. It says, What have you been doing? We can see you Sunday. I love you very, very much. You would never do anything so wrong. You're so nice to Mom and Doug. And then it says, Muffet and Lady are not getting along. Other <laughs> dog. Lady, their beagle, who survived the journey to Bird Rock. She'd gone with the sisters to live with Fred's brother Ron and his wife Elizabeth, who had a Christmas tree farm far away from Malibu. Yeah, yeah dog and Muffet. <laughs> I'm just going to flip that in after you are clearly innocent and the dogs are fighting. <laughs> Eventually, Lady went to live with Verna's sister, Julianne. That must have been heartbreaking to have yeah. Lady leave. Luckily, Annie Julie took her, but I remember when I pulled into our house and my Aunt Elizabeth and I think Kim were standing in the driveway and it didn't look good. And I was just like, oh, no. And they told me Lady died of cancer. And so that was just, that was like our last link, you know. And I, and that was really sad. And I also realized when, when Robin Williams passed away, it hit me so hard because we would watch Mork and Mindy with my dad. And it took a while to realize, like, why so many people, but it was Robin Williams, Michael Landon, that, because that all connected me to Malibu and my dad. And I think that's when it hit me. I'm like, that's why it's so devastating, because it was just part of our happy times, you know. By now, it was pouring. Uh, so July 7th, 1981. Dear Dad, how are you? I am fine. Sorry I have not been writing. I love you and miss you very, very much. This coming Tuesday, we are going to San Diego. I hope you are out by then. And then it says, who has been writing you? I love you and miss you, love, Heidi. And then it says, your tops. Yeah. Hope you're out by next Tuesday. <laughs> I'm like, next Tuesday. How many Tuesdays has it been? A lot. I'm Dana Goodyear, and this is Lost Hills. Episode 9, Prejudicial Effect. Authorities believed that Fred Rayler had conceived the perfect crime, like something out of Hitchcock. On a holiday weekend, with so many people around, with his own parents on the sailboat nearby, the next best thing to an alibi, he'd managed to kill Verna and Doug without leaving obvious marks, so that when the three of them were discovered in the frigid water, he'd appear to be rescuing them. But how to prove it? 
To do that, the DA, Stan Roden, had to look at every possible angle. Stan was just tenacity, is that the word? Tenacity, you know. He was just like a bulldog with his teeth in it. Stan Roden didn't respond to my request for an interview. So this is Dempsey Billy, one of Roden's investigators. A lot of times, uh, Stan would say something. See what you can find out about this, and I say, "Stan, you can't. That's you can't do that. I, no way." So I'd go do it, and sure enough, he'd be right. Would find whatever he was looking for. In a criminal case, the standard jury instructions are that the government must prove the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, but not to a scientific certainty. The case against Fred, the mysterious drownings of his wife and stepson the insurance policies, and, in the background, the story of another wife who'd also drowned inexplicably. It all looked bad, but also, potentially, like bad luck. Maybe Fred was a Malibu Job, pitiable, cursed. That's what his friends thought. Here's Mike Killeen. You have to ask yourself, is it possible for a human being from day one to be snake-bitten. You know, I use that term, but uh, you know how it applies to, to various things. I, is that possible? He'd turn left, he'd turn right, and things would go wrong. And, and, and it was all built up as, uh, as circumstance to create this character who, who really wasn't Fred. There was room for a healthy dose of doubt. Stan Roden had to try to make his case empirically by presenting the jury with science, because the circumstances, all those suspicious coincidences, might not be enough. But how could he do that when there was so little physical evidence? That's where Dr. Thomas Noguchi, the longtime, weirdly famous, L.A. County coroner, came in. Noguchi was the so-called coroner to the stars, He'd done Marilyn and RFK and Sharon Tate. He'd also been the coroner when Fred's first wife, Jean, had died. And his office signed off on her death as an accident. Now, the Santa Barbara DA wanted Noguchi to help figure out what had caused those bruises discovered in the second autopsies. The ones on the back of Doug's head. He was a crackerjack forensic pathologist. He really knew his stuff. That's Dwayne Mose, the criminalist. He worked alongside Noguchi to recreate the last moments of Doug's life. Together, they designed a series of experiments centered on Fred's orange dory, the boat he'd been rowing in with Verna and Doug, which he said had overturned in the open ocean by Bird Rock. Noguchi was eccentric and controversial. He'd walk around the coroner's office waving a scalpel and um, telling people, sooner or later, I'll get you on a table, or words to that effect. And people complained about that. So they removed him from his office as L.A. County coroner and sent him to be a pathologist at the County USC Hospital, which is just east of downtown L.A. And Dr. Noguchi put a sign on his office door that said, Coroner in Exile. The experiments didn't take place in Dr. Noguchi's lab. No, they happened at Noguchi's apartment building in Marina del Rey. The sheriff would haul down the dory. We'd do some work with it, then they'd haul it back when we were done. Their working theory was that Verna had been struck with an oar, 
but they didn't have the oars from Fred's dory. They were probably in the middle of the ocean somewhere. So they focused on Doug and the bruises on the back of his head. A linear bruise and a circular bruise, three centimeters apart. That pattern repeated twice. They took a Doug-sized dummy with a Doug-sized dummy head, and they bashed it on every surface they could think of. 102 times they bashed the dummy head, and they found a match. I tested the dory inside and out, from bow to stern. Nothing panned out except one place, and that particular place was the edge of the seat in the middle of the dory where the rower would sit. Stan Roden liked it, but Noguchi couldn't testify. He was in disgrace. So Stanley Roden and I had to sit down and figure out what I could testify to and what was out of bounds because I'm not a medical doctor. I could not express a medical opinion. And that's how Dwayne Mose, criminalist, became Stan Roden's star witness in what would be the longest and most expensive trial in Santa Barbara history. 105 days, four dozen witnesses, and one orange dory. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mom does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com loss today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot lost. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. 
the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. The trial for the murders of Verna and Doug started on December 15, 1981, in Santa Barbara's majestic Spanish-style courthouse. The courtroom was packed, standing room. Fred's family was there. So was Verna's mother. They were supporting Fred. There were journalists and screenwriters and looky-loos. The famous mystery writer Margaret Millar was a regular. She lived in Santa Barbara and had made her name writing chilling tales of marital deceit. This plotline was right up her alley. In California, for someone to be sentenced to death or life in prison without the possibility of parole, their crime must meet certain criteria, called special circumstances. In Fred's case, there were three alleged special circumstances. There was more than one victim. That was special circumstance number one. Special circumstances numbers two and three were the motive of financial gain, the insurance payouts from the freshly inked policies on Verna and Doug. If Fred was convicted and any of the special circumstances were found to apply, he'd be eligible for the most severe sentence. And Stan Roden, the district attorney, was hoping to send Fred to the gas chamber at San Quentin. Roden wanted to try a spectacle involving rich people and insurance and made-for-TV and that kind of thing. That's appellate attorney Wendy Lasher. She attended every day of Fred's trial, taking notes. Because even before the trial started, she was laying the groundwork for an appeal. I asked her what she remembered about Rodin. Tall, thin at the time, um, energetic, aggressive, pleasant on the surface, but kind of devious. I wouldn't quite go so far as to say unscrupulous, but certainly pushing the envelope in terms of what he could do. Definitely concerned about his reputation and making his way as an aggressive leading prosecutor in the world, um, a little bit politician-like. At the outset, the defense was feeling strong. Fred had been working out every day in jail, and the papers were full of admiring descriptions of his thick, curly hair and athletic physique. At the time of his arrest, he'd worn a full beard. His team didn't think that look would fly in conservative Santa Barbara County. They thought it made him look Rasputinish, like he was hiding something. He came to court with a clean shave. The concerns Fred had about being indicted for killing Verna's first husband and the Navy diver who drowned while using Fred's scuba equipment were gone. The DA appeared to have dropped those lines of inquiry. All Fred's prior sketchy insurance history? It might as well have disappeared, too. The judge wasn't going to allow the prosecution to introduce it. And Fred's defense attorney had scored a significant victory on the matter of Gene. 
The judge had ruled to exclude all evidence regarding the death of Fred's first wife from the guilt phase of his trial. The judge said its prejudicial effect would far outweigh its probative value. In other words, the story of Jean's death wouldn't prove Fred had killed Verna or Doug, but it would almost certainly persuade the jury that he had. The defense also made a motion to quash the results of the Santa Barbara autopsies. They'd been conducted in secret, and then the bodies had been cremated, so Fred's defense couldn't effectively counter their findings. Here's Wendy Lasher. What they found in the autopsies, or you know, said that they found, was like looking at Rorschach tests. You know, you could see what you wanted in those autopsy results, but you had no opportunity to look and to say, preserve evidence that you could later say, see, if you look at it this way, it doesn't show any such thing. That motion was denied. The second autopsies would be allowed. In fact, Stan Roden would call them the linchpin of the case. Stan Roden spent months arguing motive, that Fred was running out of money, and that his lifestyle was demanding more and more cash. Roden argued Fred wanted freedom, an unencumbered, newly flushed life in Malibu with houses and a sailboat and money to burn. Here's appellate attorney Wendy Lasher again. People like stories about rich people and rich people doing bad things. You know, this is this is mythology. If somebody killed, got, got life insurance and killed their wife in a glamorous situation on a yacht, you know, on a holiday weekend, wow, that's a big deal. And look, we've got this highly technical evidence about it because it's, you know, we're such a hotshot prosecution that we can do this. They also had the thing about Fred had $30,000 in cash and a coffee can in his freezer. And they tried to make that out as a, you know, clearly he was going to kill these people and escape to Mexico with this cash and live on it and, you know, make a new life for himself. The DA called Dr. DeWitt Hunter to the stand in January of 1982. Hunter was the Santa Barbara pathologist whose autopsy reports indicated trauma to Verna and Doug. The prosecution didn't present evidence about Fred using an oar to strike Verna's head because they had no oar. But Hunter did present a slide that he said showed a crush effect on Verna's scalp, a minor traumatic injury that had happened a minute to a minute and a half before her death. He said the trauma to Doug had also not been lethal and occurred before Doug's death. In other words, Doug had hit his head, or had his head hit, before he drowned. The story was there, he said, in a single hair follicle. They had preserved the whole hair, the follicle and the, the hair itself. This is Dr. Michael Baden, who for 25 years was the chief forensic pathologist for the New York State Police. Fred's family asked him to review his case, and he says the single hair theory was a misreading of the evidence. He testified that he could look at that hair under the microscope and tell that it had been crushed by a blunt object, one hair. But Bodden says there was a very obvious and benign reason for the damage to Doug's hair. In order to reflect the scalp, one has to cut through the hair and pull at the hair and bruise the hair with rolling, trying to, uh, to lift 
the scalp tissue off the skull bones, which is, uh, causes blunt trauma to the hair. Dr. Duncan, who did the first autopsies in Ventura County, says Dr. Hunter's findings were a joke. Hunter was unqualified, unqualified to really interpret forensic autopsies, but this was an especially troubling re-autopsy case eight days after death or thereabouts, seven days after an initial autopsy. He was totally unqualified to interpret those findings, which changed dramatically, and what he presented to court never should have been allowed to be presented in court. I couldn't get in touch with Hunter, but Duncan contends that Hunter's lack of expertise sent the investigation down a treacherous path. Because, he says, forensic pathology is an art of exclusion, and Hunter saw a meaning where there was none. The difference between a a non-trained pathologist and a forensic pathologist is a forensic pathologist knows what not to interpret. An untrained pathologist interprets everything. Hunter's biggest error, according to Duncan, was that he failed to account for the passage of time. The bruises and markings that Hunter saw on January 9, 1981, that Duncan had not noticed six days earlier on January 3rd, Duncan says that's because the bruises weren't there on January 3rd. He didn't miss the signs of trauma, he says. The trauma was post-mortem, most likely a result of the first autopsies, accentuated by time as the blood in Verna and Doug's bodies settled and pooled. The marks were artifacts, phantoms, not maliciously inflicted wounds. It's more like a photograph of a ghost that um, wasn't there and now appears to be there. And it was nothing. Even the bruises on the back of Doug's head. That, I contend, is from post-mortem artifact from the way bodies are stored. The bodies are laid on a, on a head uh, brace, and they sit that way for a week. He's, he's des- describing artifacts as if they were significant throughout the autopsy, And once you're doing that, um, you know, that's crazy from a forensic pathology point of view. So it's kind of clown car pathology. According to Duncan, the second autopsies served their purpose. They produced evidence for the DA to use against Fred Rayler. I contend it was orchestrated to be used as an agenda for the prosecution. And that's not as far-fetched as it sounds. Because in Santa Barbara County, the coroner's office is part of the sheriff's department. Hunter was working for law enforcement. Detectives Ray and Tuller were present for the autopsies. They wanted clues, and he produced them. When it was time for Dwayne Mose, the criminalist, to testify about the dummy tests, the DA arranged for the orange dory, all 138 pounds of it, to be delivered to the Santa Barbara courthouse. And with that prop in place, Mose demonstrated his experiments to spectacular effect. One of the exhibits at court was a one-to-one picture of the back of Douglas's head with the scalp pulled back and um, a transparent overlay of the pattern on the back of the test dummy. 
and I overlaid the transparency from the test dummy on top of Douglas Johnson's head, and the patterns match. Nothing was off. Mose had a dummy the same size and weight as Doug, so he acted out the murder as the prosecution imagined it. A beating, then a drowning. Here's Fred's friend, Mike Killeen. It was very dramatic. He took the dummy and he slammed it against the boat. And and somehow, I think on his head or something, there was some carbon something that uh, created a pattern. And that pattern was the same pattern they found on Doug's head after the accident. So they said, but it's really been called junk science by so many people. And, uh, but what it did to the jury was because there was really nothing to counter it. It told them, no, that's what happened. The visual was so powerful. And um, that was definitely the turning point. Then the jury actually got to participate in a forensic discovery of their own. On one side of the dory, there was a small bump in the fiberglass, which Mose said corresponded to a little tear shape visible at one end of one of the linear bruises. Fred says it was ridiculous. They ended up having the whole jury parade by and and touch the bump. Then it was Fred's turn to testify. And right before he did, he got a piece of very good news. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before Nerd Wallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just... 
$30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Two days before Fred took the stand, he was acquitted on special circumstance number three, that he had killed Doug for financial gain. Because Doug's sister Kim and his stepsisters, Kirsten and Heidi, were the beneficiaries of his policy, the court found that Fred could not have killed him for the money. As for the policy on Verna, the insurance company paid it. It went into the Johnson Railer Trust, but only after Fred had removed himself as trustee. Bill Fairfield, Fred's friend and lawyer, replaced him as trustee. Bill also testified in the trial. He wept on the witness stand, swearing the insurance had been his idea. Fred's testimony began on March 11, 1981. He wore a dark blue suit, and he was calm. A newspaper report from the time says he only broke down when describing his realization that Verna might be dead. He says there was never any question whether he would take the stand. He had unshakable confidence in his version of events. I said the only way that they will ever, you know, really understand the whole works is if I testify. He never doubted that he would be acquitted of murdering Verna and Doug. Because even though they basically, you know, cheated doing the second autopsy and, and hiding that and all those things, the people that we had te- who testified basically showed that there was no foul, there was no harm, there was no murder. You know, in all the legalese that there is about uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt and to a moral certainty, that's basically BS. You know, you're you're trying to convince 12 people by hook or crook to vote a certain way. During his cross-examination of Fred... Stan Roden made sure the dory was brought back into the courtroom. It hung in front of the jury box, suspended from four ladders, seven feet off the ground. Roden drilled down on all the things about Fred's story of the drowning that did not make sense. How could a Navy-trained scuba diver, a water safety instructor, forget all the basic rules? He failed to kick off his sneakers and pants. He swam away from the dory, the perfect flotation device. Why would he undertake the risky and exhausting swim to Bird Rock, supporting two drowning victims and a dog? Why was he dealing with the dog at all when his wife and stepchild were dying? At this point, Rodin introduced new evidence. People's Exhibit 31C, a toy bear. He said, Your Honor, at this time, I have an animal. It is certainly not a dog, but it has movable arms and legs, and this is as close as we can come. It is a bear. Then Roden asked Detective Ray to put on the float coat Fred had been wearing on January 2, 1981, 
and he placed the teddy bear on Detective Ray's shoulders and moved it around as Fred directed from the witness stand. It must have looked absurd. And that was exactly Stan Roden's point. He didn't think Fred had swum with Lady the dog on his back. He didn't think Lady had climbed the sheer cliff on the north side of Bird Rock. He didn't even think Lady was still in the boat when it flipped. He thought Fred had dumped her on the eastern end of Bird Rock, where there's a nice gentle ledge which she could have easily climbed up. Saving the dog was just one more aspect of his bogus hero story. Call it a vanity or a distraction, it was a fib. And Rodin was sure it was a flaw in the lie Fred had been telling on autopilot since the day his wife and stepson died. Fred sat through the trial, you could say stoically, or you could say sullenly. Here's Wendy Lasher. Fred was his big, stoic guy, quiet, and kind of dark and brooding looking, kind of you know, dark hair, heavy eyebrows. And I think they really wanted to cultivate a, a dislike of him during the trial. The judge instructed the jury in the distinction between direct and circumstantial evidence and told them that there had been no direct evidence of any act of the defendants that caused Verna and Doug to drown. They were also told that when considering circumstantial evidence, If there were two reasonable interpretations, they had to give the defendant the benefit of the doubt. The jury deliberated for five days. This is Fred's friend, Mike Killeen. When the jury went away to make their decision, they, they, uh, I think on day two, they asked for information about the dory. They wanted to see the dory again. That dory made all the difference. Regardless of how they felt about Fred, That demonstration with the dory and the dummy uh, told him a story. Fred says he didn't see the verdict coming. I was literally stunned when the clerk of the court read the verdict. She had tears in her eyes when she read the verdict because I'm pretty sure she didn't think there was going to be a guilty verdict either. Fred was found guilty of two counts of first-degree premeditated murder and special circumstances one and two. More than one victim and killing Verna for financial gain. According to a newspaper report, Fred's mother gasped when she heard the verdict. And as the spectators were leaving the courtroom, she hissed, gossip kills. Fred's defense team thought it was the testimony of Duane Mose, the criminalist, that tipped the scales. Appealing the trial verdict in 1985, they'd even managed to get all three appellate judges to agree that Mose's evidence did not follow reliable scientific procedure and should not have been admitted. But Mose says, much as he would like to take credit for Fred's conviction, he really can't. Several months After the trial was over, Raylor had been sentenced. I bumped into one of the members of the jury, and we chatted a little bit about the case. I wanted some feedback, so I asked him what he thought of my testimony. And he smiled and he said, oh, we didn't give 
that any thought. And he said, the guy was lying. It was obvious to us. And we convicted him because he was a liar. In the penalty phase, Verna's daughter Kim testified on Fred's behalf. So did Fred's daughters Heidi and Kirsten. Fred's defense attorney asked them to conjure up happy memories to tell the jury in the hope that it would help spare their father's life. In the hayloft in Colorado, Kim found a letter she'd written on the day she took the stand. She was 12. July 7th, dearest dad, today has been a long, hard day. We had fun at the hotel. Dad, I am sorry if I made it sort of hard for you today. I love you so very, 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 very much, and I miss you, love, Kim. And I wonder then if this, the only time that we were in court was for, um, yeah, penalty phase, and to tell our little special story or memory. Mine, I talked about, um, I had a white bunny named Snowball, and my dad had made a, um, a harness for my rabbit so I could take it for a walk in the backyard. And she, so she'd be on a leash. Kirsten, who had just turned eight, told a story about Fred and Verna making out at the register at a Bob's Big Boy. Heidi was 11, and she doesn't remember what she said. I was so scared and, like, so dizzy. You know, it was just... One of the scariest things ever, sitting in this big box with all these people staring at you. And the weight of the world on your shoulders, because I didn't know it was a penalty phase. I thought if I just said the right thing, he is coming home. And we didn't find out. It was years later. You know, of course, you that would have been devastating if you found out that it was the penalty phase. But I just was so nervous and worried that I would say the wrong thing and then he couldn't come home. Here's one for me, no date. Dear Dad, I miss you very much. I'm tired, but I do not want to go to bed. Do you have to stay for your life? I miss you very, very much. I know that you won't like to stay there. Love, Kirsten. And then here's another one. Dear Fred, <laughs> and then Dad in parentheses. I was crying when I heard the news. I miss you so very much, and I hope you come home soon. Will you write us back? If you can, we made chocolate chip cookies with Aunt Elizabeth. See you soon, I hope. I am the youngest, but I love you just as much as the big kids. I need to go even though I hate to. Love, Kirsten. I think you are the most wonderful dad in the world. I love you right back. I miss you. Come home soon. On the day Fred was arrested, April 3rd, 1981, he left Malibu forever. But he wasn't the only one. I mean, we didn't get to say goodbye to our friends or our teachers or anything. Like, I mean, we were kids, so the way that they explained it to us was 
there's been a huge like misunderstanding and that we're gonna, you know, we're hiring these really smart people and they're gonna help and we're gonna like sort it out. But that's what we just kept being told, that it was a misunderstanding. And when our uncle picked us up, we never went back to Malibu. The girls started new lives and didn't tell their new friends the story of Verna and Doug or that Fred was in prison for killing them. But they kept a secret vigil. Here's Kirsten. We weren't told, like, okay, this is your life now. Like, this is how it is, and we're going forward. Like, it was, it was always this, you know, we're going to straighten this out. We're going to bring him home. I mean, even after the conviction and the appeals, I mean, I have memories of being at school. I'm like, I might go home today, and my dad might be there. And I mean, I don't know which appeal it was, but... Um, One time, Heidi, Stephen, and I, Stephen is our cousin that we grew up with, um, made confetti with a single hole punch, like punched paper, made all this confetti, and then literally practiced throwing it, it, picking it all up, and doing the, like, welcome home. And then we would throw it on somebody walking through the door, and then we would pick all these tiny pieces of confetti up, put it back in the bag, and then somebody else's turn, like, literally practicing his homecoming. We were so excited, and we use that analogy today. My husband will say, like, if something, like, we're hoping for something, he's like, well, let's not make this a confetti incident. And it's it's true because we... Like she said, we were so excited, and I was thinking, oh, my God, today's the day. I'm going to go home with my dad and my sisters and, you know, get our dog back from Annie Julie and just be back together. And it was just disappointment after disappointment. And, I mean, I know Kirsten is like this. The sisters were waiting for their dad to come back and make everything okay again. And they're still waiting today for what they believe is justice, Fred's release. But there's someone else in this story who's waiting for justice, too. And that person is Heidi and Kirsten's mother, Fred's first wife, Jean. Coming up on the season finale of Lost Hills, a detective visits Bird Rock. I'm looking at that, and I see all the rocks. I'm like, those are all tombstones. That's all death. That's how I look at it. Like, I just, it, it's just a weird, I got a creepy feeling. This whole place is not what I thought it would be. That's next in Episode 10, Lifelines. Lost Tales is written and reported by me, Dana Goodyear. It's created by me and Ben Adair and produced by Western Sound and Pushkin Industries. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can hear the whole season ad-free and get early access to the final two episodes. Find Pushkin Plus on the Lost Hills show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. 
BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.